this is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice, where members of the Restorative Community Coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects, and consequences on their family, friends, and taxpayers. Listeners' discretion is advised for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences, discussed for taxpayer education, and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. Hello, this is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice podcast, and today we're speaking with Ava Sikowski, a marketing specialist working with us on I Change Justice to produce and share the stories that the Restorative Community Coalition has been gleaning from our clients over time. And Ava was willing to step forward today to bridge the gap between a professional background and her personal story as a, as a grandmother aged older generation that is often silenced by a system that we don't even recognize silences us. So Ava, what is it that made you willing to speak and share a real story about the ripple effects on our families and communities as individual people who either speak out or don't speak out, who are part of the system, not part of the system? What's up with you? Well, you know, I've been, um, you know, honored really to be able to spend time uh, in the development of the podcast and to meet all of the people uh, that are involved uh, with uh, working on the podcast, all of the people within the RCC organization, and just learning so much more about what you all do as a, you know, as people say, feet on the street, boots on the ground type organization that is then almost 100%. But I mean, I think, I think you've always got some funding, but really the majority of your services come from the hearts and feet of your volunteers. And Hearing those stories of, um, you know, uh, some of the people who got involved with the RCC that had been in prison and some of the stories that I heard about in terms of them being able to get the services that they needed to be able to turn their lives around. Those are the stories that really got to my heart and 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 gave me a little bit of hope that there are still small local organizations out there that are providing people who are desperate uh, a hand up pat on the shoulder uh, an assurance that they're still a decent human being that that they matter or that someone sees their pain you know those kinds of things are are hugely hugely important. And I think one of the things that came, you know, to my mind is that, you know, I was definitely a recipient, you know, of, of services. Uh, I mean, you mean, you talk about, you're talking about when you were a youth in the beginning of your life. So we're, you want to yes. sort of step backwards into where you came from. 
how you've transformed as a professional and become the person, the grandmother that you are today. Yeah. Can you expand on what does that look like to you if you if you look back into your history as different from looking forward into the future? Because that will come in the in the last segment of this conference call. But right Mm -hmm. now, Mm -hmm. let's go back into the past and say, okay, where did you come from and what's your life journey? Well, you know, I'm 65. (laughs) I've had had a pretty busy uh, life and um, three careers, I imagine, if you don't count motherhood. I've traveled all over the country, been a musician, a songwriter, but my first, my first life, my first job, so to speak, I was, uh, you know, I started off as a, as a very troubled, troubled kid. I think there was a lot of trauma. I know there was trauma. Some of it precipitated possibly by the fact that we moved around a lot, you know, just a lot. There was, we didn't have the community uh-huh. from the time I was six months old. You know, we didn't live anywhere steady until I was six, from six months to six. Wow. And then um, and then we did have a little community for a little while, I think, from the time I was about eight to about maybe 10 or 11 or something. But then, you know, my mom moved us way out in the middle of the country. And to me, it was just like, you know, it was a two-room farmhouse. It was... A two-bedroom farmhouse, not a two-room farmhouse. And uh, any semblance of anything I ever knew was gone. And, you know, my dad was in the height of his alcoholism. The fact is, is that I had incessant suicidal thoughts. You mean as a little kid? Yeah, even before I was 13 years old. I think I was just on the cusp of 12 when we moved there. I think maybe I, I became 12 when we moved there. But I was, I had, I entertained recurring suicidal thoughts about stepping in. I'm laughing. And this is only because, uh, you know, it's a defense mechanism. Of course, I know that. But, you know, things like stepping in front of a truck, I wonder if I could, you know, stuff like that. Playing with it, it seemed like. It was, it, 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 when I, as I look back on it, it was like playing with it, just playing with the thoughts. Now, you know, was I mad at my parents? Was I really going to do that? Who knows? But, you know, I want to know at one point when I was 13, I did take an overdose of aspirin. Mm-hmm. And no one ever know I did that. And But I did take enough aspirin that I had aspirin poisoning. Wow. Because I remember how I felt at the time. But also what happened at, you know, right after that is that I was uh, in uh, my junior high um, and it did seem there like there was a lot of drama with, with these little 13, 14 year old girls. Everybody was very dramatic and I don't know, <laughs> it was a very dramatic time and I just loved it. I loved that. And wow. anyway, they had some, somebody said, you know, that they built this drug center, drug abuse center across the street uh, from our junior high school. And if that we could go over there, if you, if you could go over there, if you had any problems, but you'd had to have a problem, you could go over there and tell them your problems and get you out of class. <laughs> I don't get out of class. <laughs> and I could, but I didn't know I had problems. Keep in mind that I'm walking around thinking about killing myself or I'm like a little tiny girl. I don't know I got any problems. Of course not. Uh, you know, my dad's 
probably in the worst stage of his alcoholism. I don't know that that's a problem. I don't know to talk about those things. But I, I said, well, I don't think I have any problems, but I could make some up. I was used to lying about things. So so I went in there and, um, you know, just told him these crazy, fantastic problems, you know, that should be able to get me out of class for at least an hour, right? <laughs> Which I'm sure he saw through. I mean, he was a grown man and I was a child. So, but the deal was, is that they had money that that had come from the federal government uh, for prevention. So you didn't have to use drugs. What era was this? This was 1970. Okay. So in the seventies, our government system was in a, it was in a situation where we were actually implementing prevention and subsidizing and helping people deal with drug addiction in a different way, not giving them drugs and locking them up, but actually helping people deal with the emotional issues of, uh, it was an intervention, prevention, um, uh, feet on the street. Yeah. Type thing. They went out and found the kids or they found a way to make themselves, um, known to the kids. So the kids would come to them. I mean, they were the coolest thing. I mean, one of the things that attracted me to it at the time was, you know, the hippie thing was, was, was the thing then. Right. Uh And all the boys with the long hair went to the drug center. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm like, I really need, I really need to get me some problems so I can go hang out over there with these cool kids. (laughs) Well, that's how you think, you know, when you're, that's how you think when you're a kid. Yeah, you want to get out of school and you want to go hang out with some people who are talking about some real stuff. So if you make up the story, maybe you can get some help. And fortunately, the help was really there for you. It was, and it, but it would never have been there uh, because the people that were there were, you know, people who were ex-addicts, people who were... Um, people that were in recovery at the time. They weren't the psychiatrists and things like that. So they They were ministers. They were people who were part of the community that wanted to be a part. Of course, there was a big movement at that time with a lot of, you know, talk groups and stuff like that. We bring kids together and you did counter groups and things like that. Um, But it was really about the group experience. I mean, for four years, I went there three times a week. I went to three encounter groups three times a week for three hours. Wow. For four and then and then I also worked there. So I mean what what it gave me was therapy on the job. Wow. I mean, I had my whole head, my I it taught me my the values that I was gonna have. I mean, at the time, they they put some money into prevention, right? Well, at my high school at that time, I finally got to the high school, which now is ninth grade, right? Uh, The drugs were everywhere. I remember walking, you know, really walking down the hallway of my high school and literally smelling marijuana and thinking to myself, wow, uh, the kids are getting really risky. And then I thought later on, well, wait a minute, it's probably the teacher's that were smoking, but it was a really different time. And I grew up in Milford, Michigan. That's where my high school was, if anybody wants to look it up, but that's where it was. And drugs were a big deal. And the only reason 
I really did not get involved in drugs was that my community was more important to me. And they did have a kind of have a rule. They kind of had to choose. If you want to hang out here and hang out with us, you can't be out there drugging. And I was never had when I'd entered that situation, I wasn't a drug abuser anyway. So it wasn't like I was giving anything up. It was just I was choosing not to do something. So, what's so that money actually worked <laughs> for me. So what's interesting about that, Ava, is that you just said therapy on the job. Well, let's equate yes. that to today. You know, what? It what's really happened is that that was therapy. That was pre-employment therapy. That yes. was pre-work release. That was pre-entry yes. to a working society, a working class society. So it was therapy. It was relationships training. It was healing in a small community network where people who were actually living in the community, recovering in community, helping each other in community, were helping you enculturate yourself to a world where you went from suicidal thinking to social work, as I recall. Is that correct? Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, I was actually a licensed social worker in Michigan, uh, believe it or not, when I was uh, 18 or 19 years old. I think I was 18 because I had already supposedly worked in the field and since I was 14. Although, I mean, how much work does a 14-year-old do? <laughs> and how much social work does an 18-year-old do? But um, the point was, is that it was about community. It was about being a uh, an intervention worker. It was about people talking about things. It was, you know, teaching people skills, teaching Here. people how to how to talk through their problems, how to express their feelings. We were taught empathy. We were taught, you know, all everything that was the thing then, you know. But the whole point of it was learning how to be a peacemaker, learning how to have better relationships. That was the theme of every day of my life. And and in the time that I, you know, called myself a, you know, a counselor or whatever the new term was, they had a lot of them at that time. You went through the drug abuse field, went through a lot of different acronyms. Chemical, you know, I think now it's chemical dependency or just substance abuse to chemical dependency. I know it's gone through a lot of uh, uh, metamorphosis as people have learned more, but, you know, I, I look back on it and I just, I know that if that little bit of money, but it wasn't also only that. I think that the important thing to remember is that since there was that money was all over the nation, there was also a community of those people around. And so those people worked together. They learned together. They brought teachers together. They had conferences together. So the people who started in that field, which many of them probably only had a high school degree, we're not talking probably many people at all who had. Um, and then, of course, in all of the places I worked, there was a combination of the two. There was always a, you know, a psychiatrist on staff or whatever. But there was plenty of people who maybe they had had four years of college, but. Um, you know, maybe they had just a high school school degree and they were just in recovery, but they had been in recovery for 20 years. They had they been in recovery for 30 years and they were bringing that knowledge to that community and the AA community 
uh, the NA community, all of those people were all a part of that big recovery project that 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 gave a lot of resources to every community. Every, lots of little communities got those types of grants. It wasn't just ours. So it was really in the space between the 70s and the 80s that you're talking about when there was yes. peer mentoring, community collaboration, yes. Yes. partnering with the social workers to help people who were dealing with the recovery from Vietnam, for example, with the recovery from all the violence in the street that had happened during all the civil rights things that were coming along and as we yes. were going through racism, racist yes. issues. And we were going through the abortion issues and the Equal Rights Amendment. There was a lot of civic and social trauma that was happening at the time. And this is when the healing community was getting its legs under. Well, what took you out of being a social worker to being something different? Can we let's take a break and we'll come right back and have that conversation. Okay. All right. Thank you. If you are a business owner or professional who wishes to sponsor our Restorative Community Coalition, give a legacy gift to the Restore Life Center project or support our fundraising events, feel free to contact us at sponsors at therestorativecommunity.org. Welcome back, Ava. So you moved in your life in the 70s, early 80s from, from social work and having your personal life reorganized from er, early childhood up through middle school, high school, into the professional world. And then you made a switch from social work into a different percep perception or profession, actually. What happened that that happened? Well, you know, I, I never knew how to do anything else because remember, I grew up in this that field, right? So I didn't <laughs> know how to do anything else. And so uh, I lived in Michigan. Uh, then I started my own. Uh, I said, you know, when I was a kid, we moved around a lot. And then I started my own um, little thing. So we I lived in Illinois. Um, I lived in Michigan and I was licensed in Michigan. I lived in Illinois and I was licensed in Illinois doing the same kind of work. Um, then we ended up, we were actually on the road for about four years just playing music. So I was kind of out of the field there. But then we moved to Alaska. So we lived in Alaska for eight years. I was licensed in Alaska for eight years. So, you know, my uh, uh, that's how much of a community there was at that time and for how long it lasted. So we lived in Hawaii for two years and we both were um, worked at Castle Hospital. Dennis was doing, um, uh, he worked right on the, on the, he worked right on the high school campus. And his whole thing is he, he just had to, all he had to do was to interact with the kids, take them places, take them. And then they would talk about stuff. That's all he had to do. And he would learn about them, what they needed, what there was going on with them. I remember we took them all camping one weekend and that was a grant. Wow. Now, you know, you know, we got really close with these kids and these kids got really close to us. And I think when you have those experiences, I need, at least I know when I was going through all of that in my life with those people, Having those experiences of that kind of closeness, you know, there were so many times that I felt truly, you know, unconditionally loved. And, you know, keep in mind that, you know, my parents supported that all those years, too, because, you know, I left and went to school at, you know, six o'clock in the morning and I would get home at 10 o'clock at night, 930 at night. My parents supported that. 
they so didn't they was, never gave me a hard time about it so so this wasn't it wasn't it wasn't anti-family it wasn't any rebellion against family it was support from family who also had been tra traumatized in a prior generation but they supported the coming together in community and building these family groups and music and theater and counseling and talking not really not really they okay. just didn't get in my way Okay. And I think partly because I was working and, you know, in my, in the way I was raised, you know, that was one of our huge values was work. And so if you were working, you could pretty much get away with almost same thing because cool. you were working, you know, working was a big, big value. And so I think some of it is because I was working and making my own money and, you know, probably just keeping me out of trouble. You know, I'm sure that was part of this. <laughs> At least we know where she is and what she's doing. Maybe, you know, I don't really know what went through their heads. So uh, I was, I'm sure I was bratty. I was crazy brat, but uh, um, they so, were. So there was something that you said pre-interview, pre, pre this recording, you spoke about how at some point you ended up having to get out of the field because you couldn't afford to stay in it anymore. What well, yeah, we'll see. Happened? The last job that I did in the field was when we moved to Washington. And by the time I got to Washington, I don't know if this was only happening in Washington or if this was nationwide. By the time I got to Washington, there was no more what I would have termed treatment or counseling or uh, any of that. That didn't exist. The program they had here at the time when we moved here, we both got jobs here right away. It was a fairly big organization then. I think it actually on paper, it still at least exists now. I don't remember the name of it. Thank God. Otherwise, I'd probably tell you. <laughs> it, the, the whole feel of it was different. It was the atmosphere of every single person there was there because they were there because the court sent them there and they had a reason to be there. The reason was if they went through this program, then they might be able to get a deferred for a DUI. Mm -hmm. That was their whole program. And what so year, they, what years this was it? 94, uh -huh. 94, 95. And so they didn't want to be there. They hated you. I, I had a, you know, a set classes that I taught. I taught these classes. I showed these little movies. Um, I thought all my presentations were good and everything. <laughs> and, you know, once, and you'd once in a great while, you'd feel like <clears throat> you connected with one person or something, but you were, you were just a, pro, uh, a um, probation officer. That's all I was. I, I, if they came in drunk drinking, I had to throw them out. I had to take urine from them. I had, I mean, it was like being a cop and I wasn't going to have a relationship with these people. I was going to be the last person in the world they're going to talk to about anything that's going on in their life. And I didn't feel safe. You know, I was a young woman and uh, you got, you know, I'm, mo I'm mostly male. I'm not trying to be sexist, but mostly male group of people, 15 men, that are mad at you <laughs> and they leave me alone to lock up. <laughs> wow. So it wasn't, didn't feel safe. Uh, so I didn't like it. Um, so I ended up actually uh, putting in my uh, resignation, but then what ended up happening was all of a sudden 
Alaska, allowed, we were working under the license of Alaska. Washington wouldn't even give us give us a license unless we work for two years for free in that kind of atmosphere. For first wow. of all, they they wanted us to go back and and what they were doing is basically taking people who were newly in recovery, which I understand that kind of um, zest, so to speak, and they would they would have to go through these programs for two years, which is probably really good for them. It's kind of you know kind of probably what what I had you know a little bit, but. They had to do it for free and then they would be a counselor at the end of the two years, but I couldn't work for free. And even, even the amount of money I was making at the time, I couldn't support my family. So it was just a time to go. Wow. To go. And so I reinvented myself and found sales and then I found B2B and I've been really been working in B2B ever since. What's, so what's B2B? Explain that. Business to business. Mm-hmm advertising and then in 2013-14 I decided I got laid off from my last corporate job and I started my own business so I've been my own marketing professional for the last uh, eight nine years and um, I only have a handful of clients and you all are one of them wow so what I just heard you say is that the marketplace changed in the 70s and 80s and it morphed into this place in the 90s where the the corporations, the courtrooms, the probation, the law enforcement system became the punishment and social work side of it. We moved from social work done by communities helping people to corporations public or private, working together in um, systems that were all driven by mandates, by rules and regulations. They were punitive. They were all driven punitively. We were there to punish them. And they people, the way they talk about their clients, you know, Dennis and I both noticed it right away. It was like that there was an immediate, as soon as you walked in there, there was an adversarial, you had an adversarial relationship with these people. They had to prove something to you. So you had, there was a power relationship that suddenly had, was there where in the past, it was always about trust. Like, you know, trying to get, you always knew that nobody was going to give up anything until they trusted you and you had to prove that nobody expected i i I just that wasn't the way you you know that's that wasn't we were you know that what i learned from being from being a counselor for all those years was you know i i learned about relationships Uh uh-huh you know you what you put out there you get back and and you know i think one of the things that's happened for me in terms of listening to the to the podcast is just what's what it's brought home for me being away from all of that for so long i can kind of could kind of close my eyes to it a little bit more sure quite a bit more i wasn't listening to the stories of of everybody suffering every day i just had my made my own little world as we do yeah um and um close my eyes to much of the suffering you know other than to see the people on the side of the streets and then you stop and you give a little money or you battle with yourself about giving money i mean other than that or giving to charities 
I mean, certainly giving money, but what is giving money, right? Um, so there was actually, actually a movement that happened in your heart and soul. You had to make a decision when you you were born, raised, appreciated, loved, and worked in the community living side of society, helping people, helping people. And then you recognize that the system had changed and for you to stay yes. in the system, to, to become a professional, you know, probation officer, a person who's dealing within a court system, you would have had to sell out your soul, if you, if you will, in a way to be oh, able yes. to live inside a punishment system. And it, was this yes. the period of time where you ended up writing that song that you played for the re regeneration? No, 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 that wasn't, that was a, the heart of that song came from a time when I was, you know, very still deep in the work, you know, working with people, uh, playing music. We were living in Alaska. The heart of the song happened then. And I was very involved with the community there and um, very involved with music and, um, you know, all of that and working on myself, you know, um, you know, a lot of this journey, like from the very beginning of, um, when I, you know, even started this as a little kid, uh, you know, there was encouragement for you to examine, to self-examine, to look at your values. What's your part in something? There was, and I feel like there's just this huge disconnect in people being able to speak. So the songs, um, the song's title reflected a, a really a good time in my life. It was still a part where I felt like there was still this movement toward health, a movement more toward health. Because I can tell you this, this, this issue, and you and I have talked about this before. When I grew up, when you grew up, homelessness, I'm sure it existed. I know it did. I'm sure that we went through periods of what other people today, when I was a child, would have called homelessness in terms of that we were between homes. We didn't have a place. Well, in Spokane, we, in Spokane, we called them bums. I mean, we saw the bums that were living on the streets, the panhandlers, but they were all trading coins. They were sitting in auto parts and in, in junkyards and doing trades. And they were they were trying to survive as the people coming out of you know, the depression and then various kinds of, you know, the war games and they had to survive. So we just called them bums in, you know, street people are bums. And, Cause I wasn't sophisticated enough. I wasn't wealthy enough to live in actual families where people were living on other people's homes. I was poorer than that. Yeah. But you know, there, the, there are, there are problems and anyone who's lived as long as we have can see how much these problems have multiplied themselves since that period of time that we're speaking about, like from the 70, the 70, 1970 to 1990, let's say, right? That's a 20 year period. And from 1990 to where we are now is another. And how much have we seen over the course of the last 20 years, all of these problems multiply, multiply, multiple violence. I mean, how many times have people said that? And part of it, I believe in my heart, was because we, we stopped the ripples. 
We, we stopped people intervening. We stopped helping. We stopped learning values. We stopped being community. All of those things that were there for me as a kid that I didn't have to ask for, I didn't even know I needed. This kind of hurts my heart a little bit to talk about it. Sure. So in the middle of all that, you wrote this song. Give us an, an idea of the song and what it means and where people could actually access the song. Oh, the song's up on YouTube under my name, Ava Sikowski. Um, but uh, I wrote the song called? 15... I wrote the song 15 years later, actually, when I was in another really nice part of my life. Uh, not not in the field or anything, but in a spiritual point of my life, uh, a good space in my life. And I was reclaiming uh, a bunch of things I had learned. And, you know, it was a, just a really nice spiritual time. And I remember thinking about that period. And um, the first visual that I got when I, the first, for that very first verse was, you know, just watching a woman walk down the street. I mean, we, we know we know when someone's homeless. So it was "Do You Recognize Me" is the song that mm. you're talking about specifically, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And but I think the self the self acknowledgement is is that you know it's in me too. I see someone homeless, and it makes me uncomfortable. Sure. You know, we need to own it. And what what a lot of times our our insanity is. We see someone homeless, it makes us uncomfortable, and we get mad at them. Why are you unhomeless making us uncomfortable? And that's really what we're saying to them. You know, why are you doing this making me uncomfortable? Not, you know, one of the shows that you, you know, had was, you know, people talking about garbage or talking about, you know, people, you know, going to the bathroom and things like that. Like, they're surprised. Right. I mean, you do those things, except you have a place where your garbage goes. You have a place where you can do these things. And so you're certain to, for you to imagine that some other human being, just because they're outside, isn't going to do it is ridiculous. And we, you know, but if you get far enough away from it, you have that kind of thinking. That's why the relationship part is important. And seeing the ripples like of you know my own life and i think often you know think how many years ago that happened for me that one man recognized something in me it goes back to my song right yeah he recognized something in me in that moment and this little bit of money he had he said hey maybe we can help you out maybe keep you off drugs <laughs> maybe keep you busy i don't know what he thought all so, i wow. know is that it changed my life and nobody would have ever written me down as a, as a statistic. I was not a drug user. I, and those, nobody knew I was having those horrible, terrible thoughts so often. So nobody it's interesting. Knows. So this has been a personal so person journey of change. And then there's also the professional awareness of what was going on in the outer world as our justice and social services world went upside down. Suddenly, oh, we're yeah. in the justice punishment system. You recognize that you couldn't stay in social work. You couldn't stay in mm -mm. the punishment world. And mm. you had to go into business. So it chased you into business in a way. Let's come yes. back. Let's take another break. Let's come back and talk to this experience, Ava, of you becoming active in business to business type of marketing and social media and music and this whole other transformation. Okay? Sure. 
Today's podcast is being brought to you by the Restorative Community Coalition, a nonprofit organization committed to serving the voiceless, especially those silenced by civic trauma. We received contributions from the community to fund research, education, direct services, mentoring, case interception, court navigation, restorative justice, and more. Beyond our operating costs, our long-term capital goal is to build the Restore a Life Center, a hub for housing, employment, education, life skills recovery, including a farm for sustainable living. It is designed to help our community reduce civic trauma, mitigate conflict, promote rehabilitation, and encourage regenerative local living economic development. Please donate at the restorativecommunity.org. Welcome back, Ava. Let's talk now about how did the transformation happen to you that you went from social work to uh, basically inside a system working in in, uh, probation and then making the next transition to being um, really in business and doing stuff in that environment because that's the place you could make a living. Yeah, well, it was, you know, it was the, you know, the old adage, you know, I (laughs) had to feed my family, right? I had to do something. Um, And I had never done anything else. Like I said, I I had never imagined myself as anything else. I was always going to do this thing. Um, And so, but the only skill I took away from it um, was that I could talk to people. You know, I, I had very good communication skills. I could write, you know, one of those jobs taught me how to write reports and things like that. I, I could do some basic uh, things and some of those skills were uh, transferable. Um, and at the time, um, I think my first job, uh, you know, I think, I don't know, I did, I, I said, you know, I did a whole string of stupid jobs for about two years and it was basically anything, you know, I just did whatever I could find to make money, you know, from cleaning a motel to, uh, you know, putting little bottles on doors for a water conditioning company. I mean, I did a bunch of little things that just brought in money. And then the first job I had was telemarketing, uh, telemarketing position. And then um, at some point I, I found uh, selling cell phones. Oh. That was when cell phones were the rage. So that was hot for about three years, three to five years. I got in on the last three years of it, I think. And, um, you know, I'd never worked a fully commissioned job before. I guess I did. I sold real estate for about a year or whatever. But I mean, that was to me, com- you know, commission was like a bad word. Like mm-hmm. you you needed to make money hourly. I was raised blue collar, right? So but anyway, I found out that, yeah, that was actually a pretty good gig. And, you know, the commission sales were a little bit better than the hourly rates. So I did that for three years. And then uh, I uh, ended up getting taking a job in advertising sales for what was what was then GTE when they were a billion dollar company. So that was my introduction to corporate. And uh, that was the only corporation I ever really worked for. I worked there I worked there for four years and then I was gone for four years. And then I worked there for four years, for four years again, or two years again. And then I started my own business, but it was always, uh, and then I worked in between, I worked in radio, I worked in television. Um, um, I produced an album. I had my own radio show. I did a bunch of stuff. 
Um, and then I ended up going back to corporate. So for a what while. made you what made you willing in the past few years, you got we met at a chamber of commerce meeting or a women's leads club or something. And what made you willing to have this conversation with us and stand up and help us produce and develop the I Change Justice podcast and help us navigate our way through these intersections of business, you know, commerce, government, and nonprofits? Like, talk, talk to us about because, that. Because it's an investment in our future. It's, you know, long time ago, somebody made an investment in me. You know, it's an investment. It's it's helping people not get to desperation or if they are desperate, help them get out as quickly as possible because you can't expect people not to do desperate things when they are desperate. And if you leave them there, you should expect nothing else. And you've seen this in all three of those sectors of our society. Yes, it's not just the homeless or the poor or the people who, you know, need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. It's people who are in the middle sector who could lose their edge of being in the middle class. And it's the well, people. Yes, absolutely. I, th I think there's people in my age group I know right now that are living hand to mouth. So when, when the day comes, and they're, they're renting an apartment. They don't have a, a place, a home that they're going to sell or whatever. When the day comes that they can no longer have a living, they are not going to be able to live the that lifestyle anymore. They're just not. They're going to have to live with someone else. They're going to have to, uh, their lifestyle is going to change. It's just, just it. I mean, it's, and it, that happens every day for a lot of people. So they're not only losing their ability to live independently, they're losing their ability ultimately to live at all. Well, I think if when you start taking that stuff away from people, it's like the interview that you did uh, last week. When, when you start putting stress on people about how they're going to get food, how they're going to sleep, where they're going to shower, whether or not they're safe, um, you know, just to have that little place where you feel like you can lock the door and you are a safe, you are safe. You can go to sleep. We have a, a population of people that never get there, never feel safe. And that has increased in the United States over the course of the last 20 years. And we've incarcerated the hell out of our population and it doesn't make anybody any better. We've spent millions and millions of dollars. I know back in the day, if the kind of budget that we spend on prisons would have been pumped into the kind of work that these people were doing back then, some of those programs back then we're funded for $30,000 a year. Now, keep in mind, that's like, <laughs> you know, 1970. But, I mean, they were running on volunteer help and all that, right? So they could uh -huh. run a program for one paid position. Uh -huh. You made $30,000 back then. You were doing barely well. I think back then you could probably have three people. I think I'm probably overstating. <laughs> in 1970, if... 
you made $12,000, you were probably doing fairly okay. That's true. Yeah, the cost of living differential is huge. But the other thing that you just said, not only do they not have today, people, because they've been made homeless, they're without shelter, proper, you know, disaster preparedness measures and proper, just basic food, water and shelter, safe, safe food, safe water and safe shelter. We've actually created a homeless migrant, not just migrating population, almost like people that are just roving, moving placeless across the surface of our inner city concrete jungles. Um, Yeah, well, you know, one of those little stories I heard on TV the other night, it was, there was, I think it was that night we had all the wind and they were, you know, offering shelter to a bunch of the people homeless in Seattle. And they said they were shocked at how many people turned it down. And so, but then the little tagline of the story is, well, the only caveat was, yes, they would give them shelter, but they had to leave all their belongings behind. Which if somebody came, well, If someone came to your home, Joy, and they said, look, you know, I'll take you with me, but you have to leave everything here. I mean, how many people, you know what I mean, would make that yeah. choice? So so my my thought is pour some of this money that we're we've been pouring into making people more and more desperate, more and more hurt, more and more in trauma uh, because of the systems we have in place. There is no soft place to fall. I mean, back in the day, there actually was. You know, you could go to treatment. They'd send you to treatment for a year. It, it was a minimal amount of money to send someone to treatment compared to what it was to send somebody to prison. Back then, they knew that. They actually knew that. There was a lot of work release programs. I worked with work release people. When I was 22 years old, I was working with women who were work released from prison. <clears throat> there were also youth camps and conservation camps and, yes. and places where we where we could get you know, like boys, boys ranches where, or boys camps where the people in middle school and high school could actually go get retraining, have a safe place to sleep. They got food, but they had to do work. So they got work skills training and job core training, those kinds of things. There was a lot of that. And today we've gotten rid of a lot of that. Most of us. Yeah. Most of it we've gotten rid of. There's nothing. And we've put the police in a situation where it's us and them, no matter who you are, we give them only two choices, arrest you, leave you be, or uh, take you to the hospital. So if you're not sick enough for me, take you to the hospital. You got to prove to me that I can let you be. Otherwise, I'm going to arrest you. And if you give me a hard time, it's going to be bad for you. And it's that's the only choice. And you've already got someone who's agitated, hurt, terrorized, and that's what they face as a guard dog. There, then you get into the fight or flight, right? And yeah. unfortunately, yeah. people fight, and that's when the police and people in trauma engage. Sure. And then what we end up with, not only so people end up in a, between a rock and a hard spot. Yes. The police end up in a rock and a hard spot yes. because they have no alternatives, nowhere to take them. And I've had police officers tell me, I have nowhere else to take them. And so that's, that's exactly right. 
And that's part of that's created this pushback in our law enforcement, like a lot of our sheriffs have actually, in fact, our own Whatcom County Sheriff um, published a, a thing on We Speak. And he was talking about how the police now are backing off and not engaging because they don't know what else to do. And that's mm-hmm. that's this really interesting catch-22 Mm-hmm. A fight, fight, a fight, flight, or freeze. So there's a freeze mentality that has come in in our mm-hmm. civic systems where, well, we don't know what to do, so let's revert to the old patterns, but they mm-hmm. don't go back far enough to see the old patterns of civic intervention and mm-hmm. social services intervention that actually served as a buffer between those people uh-huh. who were work, were were displaced, those people were employable, and those people who are actually doing well in the new reality, mm-hmm. there was there's no buffer today. Between the 70s and the 90s, the courts and the police were our biggest advocates. When I worked at that program in Chicago, we had people that worked with a gang. They, they had crisis intervention workers that worked with the gangs and stuff in that area. Kids that might be brought into gangs. They were attempting to help them not be integrated into gangs and the police uh, were our biggest advocates we were never at odds with the police they wanted us to work with those kids but same thing with drugs but the kid but the police had an option then they had somebody else they could call we were the ones that would go out on the drug things and talk to the families and stuff so the police didn't have to mess with that they loved it but we took all of those options away from the police, just like we took them away from the community. And now what's happening is that in the middle of that process, so the police went and courts went from being allies, advocates and assets to the community, you know, the protect the people, protect and serve was the was the conversation back then. Now it is not that it's changed to a different format. And since 2000, and I think one of the things that happened in, in 2000 that most people aren't aware of, and I think this drives directly back into our community, is that the inability to be able to have a safe place to rest and sleep, I mean, that's a basic need of the human body. We have to rest in order for the body to reconstruct. But there's a second piece to that. If you don't have a way to work and restore your dignity and do something of value, which at least in those community groups, people were helping each other so they yes. could establish moral value as a human being in relationship to others. to others. And then a third thing happened, and that was technology came in and disrupted our ability to focus. We ended up with cell phones. We ended up with television. We ended up with mass media. We ended up with mass entertainment, freewheeling movies that could be put online. We went from, you know, having no, I mean, we had TVs, but I think the speed of adoption between a television to social media, to um, email, then up to to Netflix and movies that were at least controlled in the commercial world, to all of a sudden Netflix online. The mm-hmm. speed and the growth in technology and of alarms, of apps, of constant interceptions. I mean, look at look at people today a lot of those even those that are addicted or homeless they may still have a phone many of them don't even have that but the change of the need to be connected to technology for your for everything and like we said on the call 
on the interview last week, one of the guys who went on an, on a homeless, you know, a vision quest to understand homelessness and poverty. He said, if you don't have a cell phone and if you don't have a credit card and you're not connected to digital services today, you're disappeared and it's mm-hmm. impossible to get anything or do anything. And I think that it's actually sort of an element of future shock that was talked about, you know, many years ago, there was a book written about it. You know, what's going to happen as the technology revolution changes our entire worldview and all of our behaviors and our habits and our institutionalized training, it changed everything. And in the last three years, we just went through a high compression um, system of, you know, forced isolation and grief that hasn't been mitigated and emergency disasters. How does that flow into, we've got a few more minutes left. How do you see that this transformation is in some ways similar to these other changes that you've experienced on a personal level, on a professional level, and now we're talking business and civic level? Well, I just think people need more help than ever before. People need more support than ever before. People that you don't even imagine need support that you don't know about. We we see people every day that we know are in high distress. And if we are in so much distress ourselves that we can't help that other person, then we really need to, you know, we got to get that mask on ourselves then. I think if we've gotten to a place within ourselves that we can't feel that empathy for other human beings, if our if the people that are supposed to be in the job of caring for them have lost all empathy, all uh, part for them, they have, how do you expect someone to thrive in that? I mean, you know, that old adage, you throw, but what if we throw a bunch of seeds on the highway? They're probably not going to be okay. You know, I just, I feel like, but I feel like right now the hope is for me is that right now we can no longer continue to afford to work the way we've been working to do the things we've been doing. We've been trying to punish people um, and we've realized that we can punish them to death and it's not going to change anything except for make things worse. So what the trend is now is that the money is starting to flow back into community, but our communities, people like me, which, you know, need to come forward and talk about those times that we were recipients of a community effort that changed our lives, that made my ripples in my life good ripples. And I don't know what would have happened to me if that wouldn't have been there. Probably a lot of the horrible things that happened to young women today. So it's interesting because one of the things that we discovered from doing the uh, regenerative conversations a couple of weeks ago as a coalition, we invited in many different nonprofit people who were who were direct advocates in the field, like people with real lived experience. And one of the things I gleaned from that was a real awareness suddenly that, you know, like I didn't even realize that we've basically in this county have been the recipients or in the process of being recipients of roughly $100 million from federal um, gifts and solutions going to our municipal, our private, our public corporations, which is our municipal, our county, our tribal systems are, you know, our public corporations, but then they in turn are making business deals 
with nonprofit establishment corporations that are also technically, you know, public service corporations, but the strings attached are corporate strings that keep putting these organizations in a different kind of legal and civic bondage that is still controlled by this punishment system, right? So it's been, I became highly aware of how much of that money is not going back to the people that those corporations are supposed to be serving. So this thing that you experienced when you went from, you know, being a social worker to working in a punishment-based system, it wasn't sustainable for you emotionally, mentally, or, or fiscally, unless you yielded to a hard-hearted approach. Right, exactly. That's so, exactly right. And think about it. <laughs> we just said I couldn't I couldn't handle staying in it. So think about the people that they're recipients of it. If if I couldn't handle, you know, dosing out the punishment, think about the people that had to go through it. You know, so it, it was just a complete switch to um, you know, a, a power model. And we all know that people don't get well under those circumstances. So it's become a fiscal power compression. It's almost like a compression system that has everybody trapped into this corporate, almost like a corporatocracy model in the local community. And yet the very thing that we have to do to get out of it is build our compassion levels for all people involved, like everyone across our community. And you know why it matters is because everybody across the community is a taxpayer's. We have to pay that money back into a system that is run on all these contributions, but the contributions end up coming because of the way the system has been structured recently. That money goes back into recycling benefits to corporations, not giving services and solutions to the people at the bottom who have the lived experience and need the hand up during this last three years of economic crisis and social and civic crisis. And you open up the resources for people who have the heart for folks who, who have the passion like you guys do to work with all of these issues, to address them, to give people the compassion and maybe the, you know, the, the little, whatever little bitty hand up they need that's going to keep them, either keep them out of prison or to help them stay out of prison. I mean, it's it's self-preservation. I mean, if we create a scenario in which people don't continue to go back to prison, we are making a better world for ourselves and our children. If we create a scenario where the guy that's homeless across the street, you know, doesn't have to go somewhere or has has some place to throw his garbage. I mean, if we just get to realistic expectations, when you release someone from prison who doesn't have an ID, don't give them a check. Duh. Yeah. Why, there's so many roadblocks for people. And back in the day, there would have been somebody out there like you guys are picking these people up saying, okay, we're going to have to take you this place, this place, this place, this place, this place, because that's how many roadblocks we have to get through. But I've got the recesses to support you, which might just be in a, be in a taxi cab that day. Maybe that's all that person needs, right? Yeah. But we're our gonna... system isn't set up to just give that to him. Right. Yeah. So, so truly 
what we have to do is find a way as a community to have the conversations across the intergenerational and siloed sectors to be able to work together to to build a whole new way of looking at community, supporting community, helping nonprofits, and healing the hearts of individuals so we can be we can rehumanize our system. You know, I'd love to talk some more, Ava, but I just realized we're really out of time. Sure. So is there a last sentence or two that you want to say before we wrap it up today? We can bring you back to the show at another time, obviously. Yeah, I just, the last thought is, you know, support the nonprofits locally, um, continue what you all are doing in terms of, because you you have the job now of rebuilding an infrastructure um, to so that all of these nonprofits know you exist, know what services you offer, and then be able to expand upon those, figure out what the gaps are, and then fill them. But, you know, a little bit of money will go a long way. And if we can support government that supports non local nonprofits, not just, uh, you know, some established, but the ones that are going to really get money to the people with their boots uh, on the ground and the people that are willing to help. Um, just just help the people that, like you said, we talked about earlier, don't have boots, yeah. let alone be able to get them on the ground. Yeah, we have to put so, socks and boots on so they can pull themselves up by the bootstraps. I mean, we're in that position. Yeah, so, they got no straps. Yeah, they got no straps. They can't pull. So, <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much, Ava. We have to um, close the the podcast now. Thank you, audience, sure. for listening. And check us out at the Restorative Community. Dot org and on our YouTube channels, our I Change Justice Spotify channels. Thank you so much, Ava, for, for stepping out here and helping us make this transition in 2022-2023 to a new compassionate, kind community. Thank you all for listening. Please share our podcast with your friends and family. Subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, or from your favorite playlists. At therestorativecommunity.org, you're invited to subscribe to our newsletter, connect through social media, or send us feedback on our shows. If you're inclined to help, you can volunteer, donate, learn more, and connect at info at therestorativecommunity.org. Contributing helps us empower those silenced by oppression so they can emerge into their higher potential. Thank you.